You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. In Canada, black people come in and out of fashion. And we come in and out of fashion in regards to what it is this nation wants to tell the rest of the world about itself. That might be the distinguishing feature between Canada and the U.S. Welcome back to another episode of Black Tea, the most thoughtful and heady Canadian podcast ever. Well, at least in our mind it is. Uh, <laughs> right, Mel? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so on today's episode, we have a very well-respected guest. Um, Dr. Ronaldo Walcott is um, a Black intellectual, an academic, or what I like to call a black academic. And uh, what I like to say is, you know, as we look deeply into where our community was, um, you know, where we are now and where we think we are going, we should always have community members like academics nearby who are tied into the worlds of research, education, and scholarship. Now, before we dive into it, a little bit about Dr. Ronaldo Walcott. He's been doing some fantastic work for the last number of decades in Toronto. I'm not calling him old, um, but he's been doing this for a minute now. Dr. Walcott is a professor of Black Diaspora Cultural Studies at the Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. And his teaching and research is in the area of Black Diaspora Culture Studies, postcolonial studies with an emphasis on questions of sexuality, gender, nation, citizenship, and multiculturalism. Now, Ronaldo is also an accomplished Canadian writer, having authored a number of books, some really great reads, um, including Black Like Who, Writing Black Canada, which came out in 1997, the first printing, all the way to a few current books he published this year in 2021, The Long Emancipation, Moving Toward Black Freedom, published by Duke University Press, and On Property, which we're going to get into a little later on in the show. Now, as an interdisciplinary Black Studies scholar, Ronaldo has published in a wide range of venues. Uh, he publishes in newspapers, magazines, and he comments on Black cultural life for radio and television as well. And that's actually what I would like to get into firstly with Dr. Walcott. Um, now, I remember interviewing you eons ago um, for Now Magazine. And um, what drew me to your early scholarship and, and your seminal work, Black Like Who, was that it felt really digestible to me, a non-academic. Um, you know, I was a journalist at the time writing for a weekly magazine. And, you know, I saw somebody like yourself being, you know, African-Canadian, Black, and in Canada. And this was at a time when it seemed to me that a lot of my academic reference points when it came to popular culture and Black identity were coming from the United States, a lot of African-American intellectuals. I used to consume Dr. Cornell West, Henry Louis Gates, Michael Eric Dyson, Trisha Rose, and it goes on and on. So in your view, what I wanted to ask you, Dr. Walcott, is, is it important that black academics in Canada are out there in the secular world trying to sway public opinion, appearing on radio, television, writing for newspapers, magazines? And the reason I ask this is that black academics for good and bad um, – in America, they take up a lot of space in, in that world, you know, but I don't see that as much happening here. I don't know if that's a good thing, if that's a bad thing. Um, what's your view on that? Um, first, let me say thank you, Dalton, to you and Mel for having me on the podcast. And it's okay, you can call me old. <laughs> I'm pleased to be in my mid-50s and, and still to be around, especially given the time that we're living in. So, you know. In the last couple of years, a lot of people in my age have died, have suddenly died. So I'm pleased to be around. Look, I think that um, 
black academics into the public sphere at their own risk. And I think those of us who want to do it and can do it should do it. I would never be prescriptive about it. I would never say that all black academics need to enter into the public sphere. As a black academic, when you enter into the public sphere, the roles that you're offered are really limited. People either want you to be simply rah-rah for something that they call and imagine the black community, or they expect you to play the role of the kind of angry black person. So often the analysis that you're trying to bring to the table is not heard, and you're just there as a kind of cutout cardboard representation. But back in the mid-1990s, when I was in my late 20s and began my first job at York University, I made the decision that when asked, I would speak from the position and place of one, being a Black scholar, and two, being a Black man in Canada who was interested in Black life in Canada, which is not to say that Black life in Canada is not also interested in Black people elsewhere and that we don't draw on the insights and the cultural expression and all of that of Black people from elsewhere. But I wanted to be a part of a group of people who would take seriously that Black life in Canada mattered and that we should study it, talk about it, and make sure that it was part of any kind of public sphere conversations around what it means to live in the geography of Canada. So that's what I've been doing now for almost three decades, and I'm not going to stop doing it. Okay, Ronaldo, I just sort of wanted to talk about the two books that were published this year, The Long Emancipation, Moving Towards Black Freedom and On Property. And, you know, some of the things that uh, that I love about your work is the connections that they make. And I liked how both works sort of speak to each other and sort of talks about, you know, emancipation not being freedom. You know, what we've experienced globally has has really been a process that has been defined that by people that aren't us you know, by a legal system that has oppressed us. So I kind of wanted to start with um, really the question of the difference between emancipation and freedom. Thank you, Mel, and, and thank you guys for reading the work. Yeah, The Long Emancipation began as a book because I was really thinking a lot about what I was reading and seeing in the news of Africans crossing the Mediterranean watching upon the shores of Lampedusa, watching Syrians cross the Mediterranean, reading the reports of the way in which those, those ships were packed with the darkest people at the bottom and the lighter people at the top, and, and really thinking about how what we were witnessing was a continuation of the historic Middle Passage that brought Black people into the Americas. But I was also thinking about, in the long emancipation, you know, watching the afternoon that reports began to come in that Mike Brown um, had been murdered in Ferguson by a police officer, and then getting online and seeing the live feeds that were coming out of there as activists began to gather and to protest his death. And I wanted to think about, you know, why do these things keep happening to Black people? Especially at a moment when, you know, we were in the Obama moment. People were talking about post-raciality, We'd return to this language of representation and not equity or even equality or anything of that sort. Representation was going to save us. And at the same time that this was happening, these conversations about representation, Black people were dying in some of the most 
disturbing and tragic ways. And so I really wanted to think about that. And what it became clear to me was that, you know, Black people are continually offered to enter a system that was in no way built to offer us any way of narrating what that system should be. So we always enter a system built on other people's terms. And the language of the law is news as a way to offer us an entry into it. So I started to think about, okay, where does this come from? And then I thought about how, you know, the language of the free, the slaves is not freedom at all, but it was really a juridical language. It's a language of legislation. That legislation was passed to free people who were enslaved. And I think that after that legislation was passed, that everything about how we think about Black people in the world and what we have access to, how we respond to violence, gets framed through this language of the juridical and the legislative. And that in and of itself made really clear to me that that's not freedom. That's a whole other kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That freedom is really about Black people being able to um, have autonomy over their bodies, to be able to make up a world that is satisfying to them and not to be subject to a set of structures and regulations and regimes invented by others, put in place by others that we are asked to include ourselves into and that we must fight for inclusion into. And that when we fight for inclusion into, we always end up on the bottom rung anyway. So I would really want to make the distinction between emancipation and freedom. That freedom is about a certain kind of autonomy. It's about Black people owning their bodies, owning their space, authorizing their lives. And that emancipation continues to be the master telling us what we must do um, through the logics of what are the legitimate institutions we should value and and fight to join. Um, When the master decides that they will extend um, an invitation to us through their own legal structures and so on. And in the second book on property, I really wanted to point out that what we now call in contemporary culture abolition is a part of that longer fight for abolition that led to emancipation. But Mm -hmm. emancipation was just the beginning, and it's not over yet. And part of the reason that, you know, a Mike Brown could be murdered by a police and his uncovered body left on the street for hours and hours It's because in both systems, whether it's the slave system or the after-emancipation system, there's no respect for Black people. There's no dignity for Black people. Um, The only respect and dignity that Black people are able to accrue is when we rebel. It's when we take to the streets. It's when we burn buildings down. It's when we demand that we are going to totally remake this system. Then we get a little bit of respect. But that little bit of respect always has us enfolded back into the man's system, into the master's system, under the logic of emancipation, never under a logic of freedom. Yeah, and it's so, I mean, with on property, I I was wondering if you could kind of go into detail about how you connect, you know, policing prisons to this whole notion of property, like how, you know, policing came about as a means of surveillance, as a means of, you know, killing people, basically, you know, um, and how they're not intervening on violence, you know, they're creating violence and how abolition means more than just abolition of police. So I was wondering if you could um, talk about it in terms of us actually owning our bodies. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? That the early people who we could use the, the word police to to name them, the patty rollers, 
But really, any white man was endowed with asking any black man in the Americas, any black person in the Americas, in the slaveholding Americas, where they were going, why they were not on the master's plantation. And that system is what becomes the foundation of policing. And so when we understand that modern policing, as we know, it comes from the fact that they were policing black people whose bodies were owned by white people. We cannot divorce modern policing from black people's struggles to own their own bodies, from black people's struggles to be able to traverse space and land freely like others. But the part of this that is really important to notice is that there are two kinds of people who end up at the rung of the society that we live in, black people and indigenous people. And for one set of people, it's their bodies that were stolen and they're still struggling to get their bodies back. And for the other people, it's their land that was stolen, right? And they're still struggling to get their land back. And those two things converge in this thing we call property. Property has evolved into real estate, the things that we own and so on. But when black people and indigenous people show up in the picture, their actual bodies and presence reminds us that they are the foundation of what we now call property. And this is particularly the reason why policing is so violent when it encounters black and indigenous people. Because we remind policing, we are the living, walking survival of, of the history of policing and what it was invented to do to take native people's land and make them disappear via genocide and to enslave black people, turn them into units of labor, but also to maintain a discourse about them as being the rightful ones to be turned into labor, to be turned into waste, so that when their labor is done, they can be disposed of. And this is why we pose such a significant threat to policing as an institution. And that's part of what I was trying to get at in on property to point out that historical link so that we can understand that what we call abolition today is part of an unbroken struggle to not just transform the fact that black people were enslaved and indigenous lands were stolen, but to say that that project is not complete yet. And that contemporary abolition has a lot more to do with than simply abolishing the police, abolishing the criminal punishment system, that it also has a lot to do with totally reordering the society that we live in. And that means abolishing the dominance of European institutions as the only way in which we can organize what it means to live a life. I wanted to get into this idea around, um, you know, sort of rebel outlaw figures. Uh, and um, I want to talk about uh, Dave Chappelle. Did you see The Closer? <laughs> no, I didn't see The Closer. There, there, Dave Chappelle hasn't made anything in a while that I felt like I needed to see. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, I mean, do you want to expand on that? I mean, here's the thing. Um, you know, whether you've seen it or not, I mean, it's sort of dominating headlines. Um, this idea, mm-hmm. you know, his latest Netflix special called The Closer, you know, it's been widely condemned as, as being transphobic and uh, protests happening within Netflix, the company itself, outside of Netflix. Um and, um, you know, whether you've seen it or not, I wanted, I wanted to get your view on, you know, somebody like Chappelle who, when we talk about sort of race relations, I mean, here's a guy, you know, he's the creator of, 
you know, that Clayton Bigsby character, you know, he's like the black white supremacist who attends Ku Klux Klan meetings. Um, you know, he, you know, you know, he's a guy who, uh, you know, he had in one of his shows, this, uh, this idea, this skit, it's hilarious, but, uh, basically this quick fix, this quick way to get rich, um, which is to impregnate Oprah Winfrey. You know what I mean? Like, it's just ridiculous. Like the guy just pushes buttons, pushes arms. That's what he does. You just said something about, you know, not perhaps taking his, you know, his Netflix specials, kind of specials that seriously. Is that in light of something you'd heard before? Do you feel that he's like a transphobic, um, total homophobic? Like, what's your whole view on Dave Chappelle? Well, look, I, look, it's pretty clear from reading the reports and seeing the responses to Chappelle that he's not able to think beyond heterosexuality as the only way to live a life. Um, he's not able to think beyond the gender binarisms. But what's even more disturbing to me about a figure like Chappelle, and this is, this is what I was kind of referring to when I say as a black scholar or academic to enter the public sphere, you enter at your own risk, is that figures like Chappelle have to deny the presence of people like me, a black gay man, black queer man. So for him, queerness is always white and blackness is always race, and the two never meet. And as a black scholar and thinker, so often we run across that particular kind of sentiment in black communities, in the people who get elected to speak on behalf of black communities. <clears throat> and when you push back against that, you run into trouble with those communities. Um, they see you as, as causing trouble. They don't see the Dave Chappelle's who are disregarding and excising from communities, black queer people like myself, as causing trouble. They're to be celebrated. But the reason why they're being celebrated is because they're wealthy, not because they're saying something interesting, not because they're saying something that might transform how we live together. And so, you know, for me, there's no real desire to run off and see Chappelle and see the way in which Chappelle is disregarding the lives of trans people. But Chappelle really revealed himself in this moment as someone who sits right at the edge of the kind of conservative rhetorics that are circulating in the culture right now. When he talks about himself as being canceled, he really reveals something about himself. And so for me, I always want to be able to be very clear that a figure like Chappelle would not be the kind of person who will constitute my Black community that my Black community is far more inclusive, um, far more radical, and far more engaged in a project of love. You know, I don't stop being Black as a queer person, and I don't stop being queer as a Black person, you know. I live these things together intimately as a part of who I am. And Chappelle's inability to understand that is not only sad, but it's distressing in a way. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. He's actually performing in Toronto where we're based, um, I think on the 15th. So that should be interesting to see if, uh, see what happens there, you know, cause the, uh, the show goes on, you know, for him, it's like just another day at the office kind of thing. Right. You know, but trying to delegitimize the lives of black queer people and trans people has always been just another day at the office for many black people. And we've got to be honest about that. <laughs> right. I just can't believe that the show was sold out. I think that's really sad. Speaking of the show here, just among all the backlash, because there really is just a global rise of conservatives who are just really trying to hold on um, to some incredibly oppressive, you know, sets of legislation, just 
not even allowing people to live their full lives. And Chappelle has really, yeah, he's revealed that he's a part of that. And he's also, you know, continues to double and triple down. And what scares me the most are the people that are supporting him. Because it, it seems to be everybody. Everybody, like I just, everywhere I look, it just, it's really not that bad. And it's like, how did we get here to a point, like you said, where, you know, we forget the intersectionality of Black people. Like Dave really just wants to forget about that. And he really is fearful of not being placed at the center of any narrative. And that's, I guess, the result of, you know, some headway that's been made in terms of trans people being being seen as who they are, but at a really big cost because they continue to be put in danger. Yeah, no, look, look, I think that we should be surprised that the show is sold out, but we also can't be surprised because since enslavement, you know, there have been segments of Black men who it seems that the only way that they can think of manhood and regaining the manhood that they imagined that they lost in the context of enslavement is to engage in the most patriarchal of practices. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing from Chappelle is not just transphobic, it's also that his transphobia is patriarchal. And, you know, back in the 90s when I was younger and I was trying to figure out ways to think about this, I wrote something where I was like, you know, black men suffer from soft dick syndrome. Mm -hmm. And they seem to think that the only way to handle their masculinity is to regain this erection, that the erection is the thing that's going to make them the powerful force out there in the home and on the streets and so on. But that soft dick syndrome has not disappeared over the years. We had a black man in the White House and they're still incapable of feeling a certain sense of power. So one of the wonderful things that I noticed in the whole Chappelle debate was to watch people reassess his career in real time mm -hmm. and to go back as far as to the Chappelle show and point out how many of his skits that many people thought were really smart and really funny were also skits that were punching down on the black working class, were skits that were not particularly sensitive or understanding why many black people might have been engaged in the crack economy and so mm -hmm. on. And so one of the things that I think terrifies, you know, people like Chappelle and their supporters is that as much as they want people to disappear, they want trans people to disappear, queer people to disappear, black Marxists to disappear, that we also living at a time where all of these people can speak back to you. And they hate that we can speak back. They hate that we can say, well, no, what you're saying doesn't exactly add up. Well, no, here's another way of thinking about what you said. Well, no, this is what the conditions of my life are. And the fact that we can speak back is terrifying to them. Right, right. What if, even in Canada, um, you know, what's your view on, like, it just... Uh, I just read, uh, was it yesterday, a couple of days ago, but uh, a teacher at uh, Parkdale Collegiate Institute, uh, which is, again, not not of much surprise to me that, but was, you know, he's wearing blackface as part of some sort of ha Halloween costuming. I mean, you know, we live in a country where our, our prime minister uh, has worn blackface so many times that uh, he can't quite recall the number of times. So so that type of thing is not at all surprising to me. But in Canada, are we? it, fe it feels to me sometimes, you know, and that's just me. I, I've always been a pretty, you know, I have a harsh critique towards our country. Do we really get it, Ronaldo? You know, I mean, I, I you know, I follow you on social media, on Twitter, and uh, you have some great ideas, really forward-thinking, progressive uh, uh, viewpoints on 
on race in Canada, anti-black racism and the way we deal with it or don't, you know, uh, you know, face up to it, like perhaps our American brethren and sistren. Um, but, but, you know, what's your view on Canada and anti-black racism? You know, it's a big question, but I mean, does it feel, it feels to me like we're 20 years behind. I don't know. Do you want to just sort of speak on that a bit? I don't know if we're 20 years behind, but what I would say is that, you know, I want to go back to the example that you gave Dalton of. It's not just that the prime minister of Canada can't remember how many times he did blackface, but he got reelected twice, twice after this was revealed. That tells a, a profound story about Canada. And the profound story that tells about Canada is the disregard that it has for black people as a group. And it does not matter whether or not black people end up holding some of the highest offices in this land it doesn't matter whether or not Justin Trudeau was to in his in what might be his last term as prime minister to bring in the kinds of legislation that might make some black lives more livable than others. His re-election twice in his writing and as prime minister of this country and leader of his party tells a profound story about the disregard of black people and their concerns and lives. And so under the rhetoric and practice of diversity, inclusion, equity, what we see is that a few selected people are offered the possibility of living a life. But it's a life lived within containment. It's a life lived within the context of you can only be so loud. You can only bring your voice so far in terms of saying, what these institutions that govern our lives should be like. The minute that you really begin to talk about transformation and reinvention, you are turfed. And one of the things that I, I learned a long time ago from a mentor and good friend, Austin Clark, um, the writer Austin Clark is, that in Canada, black people come in and out of fashion. And we come in and out of fashion in regards to what it is this nation wants to tell the rest of the world about itself. That might be the distinguishing feature between Canada and the US. That the question of an African-American presence is so clearly a part of the fabric of the place that it might be aggressively attacked, um, it might be under all kinds of stresses, but it is there. It is not made to be disappeared and only appeared when convenient for the national story to portray its multicultural narrative or its benevolence and so on. I mean, even under this blackface wearing prime minister, he almost like we're in the 18th or 19th century dispatched immigration immigrants, Creole speaking immigration immigrants to Miami and New York to tell Haitians not to come to Canada. These are the kinds of egregious practices that this prime minister has engaged in. And we have not had any significant broad-based conversation about what this means for Black people in Canada. For me, this is really telling because you cannot tell me that if in the highest office of the land, the person who represents the nation can get away with this, that in other institutions, similar kinds of things are not happening. 
So can we be surprised by the teacher at part the collegiate who wore blackface? Can we be surprised that it was the students had to bring this to the principal's attention and not the teacher's colleagues? That tells you everything about the place that we live. And, and we can't be surprised by it. We have to start thinking about what more was, must we do beyond the rhetoric and the practice of diversity, inclusion, equity. Because clearly that is not working. That is a stopgap that keeps white power in place. So, like, what do you think that we have to do to just continue to tell people, like, what you're giving us is not enough? Well, you know, I mean, outside of revolution, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I, look, one of the things is, and one of the things that I was trying to point out in, in the book on property is, one of the things that black people are, even when we disagree among ourselves in significant ways, that struggle is a part of what forms us. It forms our identity. And, you know, the first moment of emancipation, the first abolitionist movement, um, which was very much about Africans who were enslaved, refusing to bow to something called slavery, so resisting continuously, which led to emancipation. Um, it wasn't some, it wasn't a gift from white people, but it led to emancipation. White people figured out how can we hold black people captive in another way? And emancipation was, was what they offered. That that is instructive for us, that we continue to struggle. We continue to push for these institutions to adapt in some way, shape or form. It is never enough. But we also know, because the, the profound thing about Black life is, is that we don't only struggle for ourselves. We struggle for generations to come. We have an understanding and a sense of the future in which we're making it now. And we know that what we do now is going to have significant bearing on what comes after and on who comes after us. So our question, or, or your question about Canada is, you know, the work that we're going to do is going to help on make Canada. Mm. We're going to work with others who share the kinds of political desires and visions that we have, like many Indigenous people, not all of them, but many Indigenous people. And we're going to work to unmake Canada. You know, the language and the idea of diversity, equity, inclusion is already compromised language. You know, it's like we didn't want to say to them, we really need to remake the thing wholesale. Mm -hmm. So we let's bring you along. And we're going to bring you along by saying, let's diversify. Let's include more people. Let's create a structure where we understand that things are not distributed equally. And therefore, we're going to have to redistribute in ways that everyone can have a chance and an opportunity. That was already compromised language. Because what we really wanted to do was remake the whole shebang. And so if this compromised language is the kind of language that they can now usurp to continue to keep most of us in poverty, most of us subjected to the most brutal forms of these institutions, then we're going to have to shift up the language and therefore shift up the practices. And that's where I think we're headed. Wow. I could talk all day. I wish we could do this all day. <laughs> But um, thank you so much, Ronaldo, for joining us in such an engaging discussion about so many topics. And you can follow Ronaldo at Black Like Who on Twitter, one of the best Twitter accounts to follow, like Dalton said. And we really appreciate you chatting with us. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Black Tea. We'd like to thank our producer, Kevin Sexton, Ryan Clark, who is our sound mixer, and our showrunner, Claire Brassard. 